All right, welcome everybody. Thank you for coming tonight. We appreciate you uh, attending. Um, first of all, I want to uh, uh, thank our friends at Dolby for letting us use their room tonight. This is a phenomenal facility, and uh, we're lucky when we uh, can actually get access to it. So we're going to start tonight with a uh, short demo of uh, Dolby Atmos and uh, Dolby Vision. Um, and uh, for those of you who have not been able to, not actually had a chance to uh, see and hear the new Dolby technology, it's uh, definitely pretty compelling. So with that, we'll let, uh, we'll let them run the demo. Roll the film. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Steve. John, come on down. So we're going to start with uh, John Cerconi is going to uh, do some uh, simpty housekeeping to begin with. Yes, I'm good at cleaning things up. Yep. So that's it. Yep. Welcome, everyone. Tough, tough act to follow there. Uh, I could have watched that whole movie again. That was awesome. So thanks for coming. Here we are at the uh, beautiful Dolby Theater, and I'm happy to uh, see all of you here. So have to always thank our uh, Simpty sponsors. Uh, they help us with... Uh, giving dollars to the section and uh, helping us uh, do the many things that we do throughout the year, so thank you to them. Also, uh, the studio in, uh, at B&H is uh, also a primary uh, sponsor, so they uh, really help us uh, through the year. So, In addition, uh, you certainly can become a uh, sponsor of Simpty New York, and we would welcome uh, speaking to you. I think uh, we're going to be launching another um, um, uh, call, uh, make calls to uh, all the folks that we know and uh, start promoting uh, the fact that we can welcome sponsors and uh, so appreciate that. Obviously uh, the organization is a great organization. If you're not uh, a member, um, we have a whole uh, bevy of ways that you can actually uh, join and we would be happy to talk to you about that and uh, if you're not a SIMPTI member and would like to be, uh, please speak to us and uh, we can put you to, uh, to uh, headquarters and uh, basically go from there. So, you grab the Lawrence slide, okay. So basically we have another meeting <laughs> in October. So, uh -huh. this is, okay. Basically, sorry for that. Um, <laughs> October meeting is a, a meeting called eSports with uh, producer Barry Grossman, solutions engineer, and uh, Josh Gordon from Josh Gordon Group. So we're gonna have this at New York City College of Technology uh, in Brooklyn, I believe uh, uh, late in the month of October. So thanks for that. So if you have any interesting topics, uh, we'd love to uh, discuss them with you, and this is how we gather uh, our, our information for what we should and should not uh, do uh, for the uh, season. So please, um, Jeff is out of town tonight, I'm filling in, and uh, be happy to uh, speak with you about that. But basically, please, um, 
let us know your ideas and we'll try to chase them down. So tonight's meeting, cloud-based production and collaborative workflows, uh, special thanks to Dolby um, for graciously helping us this evening. Ready? Yep. Okay. Thank, Thank you, you, everybody. Appreciate it. Okay, so let's see how the rest of the slide deck's going to go. Um, good, we got that. So my name's Tom Morrow. I'm with uh, Arvado Systems, uh, located here in New York. Um, and along with Chris Peterson. Chris, please stand up. Chris is with Post New York Alliance, and uh, the two of us, uh, along with John Gallagher and Connie Gordon. Connie, wave to the crowd. Um, Connie is one of our uh, uh, SMPTE student members, and we uh, definitely appreciate bringing in the young blood, because uh, a lot of us uh, gray hairs are starting to get a little old, and we need somebody to come in and take over for us. So it's good to have some of the younger folks uh, uh, getting engaged. Um, so we, um, we put a, what we think is going to be a pretty interesting topic together this, after, uh, this evening. Um, we're going to be, we have three panelists that um, will be um, sitting up here with me and we'll be uh, taking questions from the crowd, but we'll also, I have a group of questions, about five to six questions we'll be uh, uh, discussing between us and um, then we will take your questions and um, hopefully We'll, uh, we'll keep this running for a little while. Um, and with that, we'll let one of our students come up and we're gonna read the, uh, the bios for the, uh, the three panelists. <laughs> Young and tall. A technologist in the motion picture and broadcast industries with over 30 years of experience. Nathaniel Benoni, Benini, excuse me, started his career in 1989 as a pitcher car assistant, concentrating on acquisition as director of services at AbleSign. Um, he was part of the Academy Award winning team that brought the Vision Research Phantom high speed camera platform to the digital cinema market. As director of video engineering at Time Inc., he designed and implemented uh, solutions related to the cost-effective integrated production and delivery of media in a scaled mixed broadcast and digital environment. Now at Bebop Technology, he is a cloud solutions architect and runs sales engineering for a team. Thank you. Todd Kelly from Avid Technology, a New York City-based solutions architect for Avid, as well as multi multiple Emmy Award-winning cinematographer for Jonathan's Bird, Blue World. Currently, he is involved in two IMAX productions. The first, Ancient Caves, will be released in February by McGilvary Freeman Films. Uh, Diane DiCaldro, post-production supervisor. 
Diana started her career at Technicolor Postworks, working as a dailies producer for many shows that have aired on Showtime, Amazon, Netflix, and HBO. She is a member of the Post New York Alliance and Producers Guild of America. Let the grilling begin. <laughs> All right, our first question. Um, in what ways does your team, Diana, use the, uh, the cloud today? Um, oh, yeah, sorry. Um, so uh, we use the cloud today primarily um, to transmit media back and forth. The show that I'm currently working on now, um, we have components in Los Angeles, Toronto, here in the city, and in Berlin. So we use the cloud to send uh, like visual effects previs back and forth. We use it for um, stock review, for B-roll review. We use it uh, a very little bit for collaborative editing, um, but there are some security concerns. There are some bandwidth concerns with putting more of our footage and more of our edit in the cloud. And how, is, um, how have the workflows that you're using, um, how have you had to adapt that to the new cloud technologies? Um, it's been fairly seamless. Um, it, it feels from a functional standpoint a lot like using uh, a, a local server in the office. Um, it's more the communication that's had to adapt than anything else where it's scheduling a conference call, it's not walking into someone's office. It's little technological bumps and, and access bumps and uh, people adapting to things like two-factor authentication, which is new to them, and they're saying, why can't, why can't I just click it? And uh, it's always balancing convenience with security. Because there's something called the MPAA. Yes, there is. Okay, um, Todd, how do you work with your customers to move them into the cloud no, after listening to that and knowing that some of your customers are sure. going to be reticent, how do they uh, take to going into the cloud? Well, I'll say that the, the cloud journey in the industry is really just beginning. Uh, and it started about three to five years ago, people started moving towards virtualization. And people were relatively uncertain about that. They were comfortable with having a server in their room. And if there was a problem, they knew which room it was and which server it was. Uh, and Today, um, five years on, I think it's normal. I think most of the clients I talk to, um, and I talk to all the big stations here in the city, uh, ABC, CBS, NBC, HBO, Time Warner, um, and a lot of the post houses as well, uh, I'd say the large shops, virtualization is normalized. Everybody is moving towards virtualization or should be because the advantage is uh, in operational efficiency that they that they give and some of the benefits around backup and upgrades and stuff, especially when you're run, running a large organization, um, they're the overriding concern. And uh, some customers have seen their rooms, their rooms have been, you know, consolidated where before they were running, uh, they've, they've seen ratios of about a seven to one reduction in a server room where they take seven racks and they reduce it down to one just by virtualization. And now they're moving towards the cloud, uh, and there, you know, there's some initial steps that they're taking, and I think over the next three to five years, the journey gets a lot more interesting. 
Um, so we've taken what's learned with virtualization, started mapping that into the cloud and the cloud benefits. And the cloud benefit at first, in this first movement, is getting rid of that last rack, where now you just have some switches for the clients. And you essentially are outsourcing the, the upgrade of all that hardware. Um, and there's a few sort of business workflows that today predominate that. And I see those as archive and disaster recovery. And those are the two strategies where there's a clear win right now for moving everything to the cloud. It makes a lot of business sense. Um, but in the future, I think we're going to see that turn to the availability of services in the cloud. And I think that's where it's going to get more interesting. Uh, and that'll be like AI and machine learning type uh, in services available to all the media you put up there. Yeah, all of the uh, the extra AI services that are becoming available is getting it's getting very interesting. The things you can do. I just recently saw a demo of um, actually somebody who put a. It was a French company. I can't remember their name that uh, sent an entire movie through the, uh, the AI service, and it pulled out cigarettes, violence, guns, literally, and tagged everything in the timeline so that the sensors could go in and go, nope, 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 and take a two-hour movie and cut it down to 20 minutes. <laughs> Perfect for television. <laughs> Nathaniel, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, oh, I uh, am, am like-minded uh, uh, as well. I think that um, you know uh, one of the things that we haven't achieved yet is the transparency and the function uh, to the end user of um, and and keep in mind that that when we define the cloud, we're defining we're saying that it's just it's it, your, it's your stuff running on someone else's computer, right? It doesn't matter where it is. You don't you don't need to care about that. Um, I think uh, transparency is a is a big. Uh, uh, the the transparency of the experience is is a is a big deal. The the ability to layer on services as you're as you're talking about AI, um, I think one of the big uh, one of the big things that you get from being in the cloud is is the ability to collaborate with people in remote locations, and uh, 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 also. Uh, you know, when you're looking at large broadcasters and, and people doing a lot of compliance, as you're talking about, the, the AI metadata enhancement is relatively trivial to do once you're in the cloud, uh, as opposed to, to on-prem, where you need a lot of high horsepower machines and training and, and people to, to run those machines. You, you, you just don't need that uh, in the cloud. You can uh, literally put your content in an object store point the AI uh, 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 algorithms at it and, and have your metadata uh, enhanced uh, uh, right then and there. And, and that's a, uh, these are important things. The, the ability to experiment uh, with workflows is, uh, is uh, almost uh, infinitely, uh, is, is almost boundless because you have almost boundless compute horsepower behind you. So um, those, are some of the, those are some of the aspects that uh, we look at uh, when we're talking about the cloud. All right, great, thank you. Um, Diana, what kind of savings do you find in time or in the, the cost to, uh, to your services and your customers when you're working in, and you said before that you're not really so much on the collaborative editing portion, but just moving your media back and forth and not having to travel to go see customers, uh, to see your clients, um, to work with them directly. You're now able to do it remotely. 
how has that changed the the dynamics of your pricing model? Um, so it's uh, it's it's more to do with the production budget, but it saves a lot on flights, on drives, on shipping, on um, it's it saves time in our schedule where we no longer have to load a bunch of media to a drive, encrypt it, send it via FedEx, track it. Someone has to receive it and download it and bring it back online, and three days later and call and you know call us to talk about it. Now we can upload something to the cloud, call someone up and say, hey, it's there, take a look at this file, and it's as close to instantaneous as you can get, barring upload speeds. Um, but it's it saved us a lot of time, it saved us shipping costs, it saved us people having to go to different locations, especially uh, when productions are more spread out than ever, because um, not that productions aren't shooting on sets anymore, but productions are largely shooting on location much more now than they used to in service of, of the creative. Um, and with productions being geographically spread out and often away from the post team, it's incredibly helpful to be able to get that feedback quickly and not have to wait hours or days or weeks. Well, follow up to that. When you you said that when you upload to the cloud, it's almost instantaneous based on the uh, the upload speed. But what do you, do you um, have issues with latency? With once you get it there and somebody wants to look at it, how you know depending on obviously the size of the pipe that you're working with, um, is latency an issue when you're trying to get your customers in front of the media? Um, it's. In my specific instance, it's not as much of a problem because we are typically uploading short clips, short uh, short items to review. So normally, you know, a scene will be 30 seconds or 45 seconds. We're not uploading 10 minutes or 15 minutes of media. Um, so there's not much of a problem on the, you know, with the end users. The biggest issue is internet speed. Um, so where where my production is shooting right now, they're in Berlin they have less than ideal internet speed. So uh, if their internet, wherever they are shooting that day, isn't great, sometimes we do have to send them something via Aspera or Media Shuttle, and there is an upload and a pull down, which, which defeats the purpose a little bit, but it's still easier than sending a drive or a person somewhere. So you don't edit in Starbucks? I don't. <laughs> I don't edit at all. <laughs> yeah, it's always that last mile that gets you, as we were discussing, Chris. Um, so, Todd, the latency. How do you address latency, and what do you recommend to your customers? Obviously, you and Nathaniel both, and I know with my company as well, we can't control. Once, once the signal leaves our facility or your facility that we've helped you build, we have no control over the pipe. Yeah. How do you address that with your customers? Just, just a quick side question, though. Do you have trouble watching Netflix at night? Oh, never. Okay, so we'll start there. Um, it's more the Amazon and the time it bu takes to buffer up to, uh, to get there. When we're talking about editing... Are there any Amazon people in the room that I'm offending with that? Or When we're talking specifically about editing in the cloud, um, I think the important piece is to understand the limitations and sort of how it works. And um, with editing in the cloud, I mean, if you put... I'm going to speak about Media Composer. If you put Media Composer up in the cloud, which we now offer as an on-demand thing, but... If you throw that up in the cloud, you're still going to be limited by the latency and the size of the network. And so, yeah, myself, I, I spent a lot of time educating the customers about what are the minimum requirements to have a reasonable experience. It's 
again, we're at the beginning of the journey, so it's not going to be like a desktop-like experience. But if you can limit it to 30 frames a second and stereo audio, you can actually have a very good experience. And we find that um, you know, the various services will take require about 20 megabits per second, which is not an unreasonable amount. Uh, it's better at 35. And I have a general rule is that uh, I tell people to figure out what the overall bit rate that they need to see the screen is and then try to get a pipe that's going to double it. Uh, and that usually gives you a good starting point because there's a lot more than just the video that has to come down. The audio has to come down. There's some overhead to the system. And the, the latency is the problem. I mean, the size of the pipe, the megabits is the first aspect of that. But the latency, um, you know, there, there are just going to be limits. Uh, people will talk a lot about, and we have, uh, I have a lot of technical discussions and trials. Uh, I did a trial between Singapore and London um, for using Media Composer in the cloud. And uh, the, the key to success in, in having that was finding a data center that could give people the core bandwidth they needed. And if they couldn't get the bandwidth, then it was just, you know, it was something to just, it wasn't going to work, right? It's just going to be a bad experience. But when you set the expectations up uh, of those requirements and they could be met, then um, the, the experience became manageable for specific workflows. In this case, they were using, they were making like airplane cuts. Uh, where they have a finished film and then they're just cutting it up for you know redistribution uh, in an airplane format, taking out anywhere that airplanes explode or uh, all, the, all those little problems. Um, and so it, 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 uh, in that particular case, it worked. Um, but there's also uh, there's some physics involved here, where if you look at uh, trying to get a signal from New York to LA, I mean, there's a 13 millisecond overhead. I mean, that's just the speed of light, like a flashlight going from here to there. Now, if you're trying to do 60 frames a second, that puts you at 17 milliseconds, right? So that's your, you're going to be hard-pressed to put a server in New York that's going to serve that fast to New York when you need two-way ballistics, when you need keyboard input to be that accurate. The reality is you don't. I mean, there's buffering that gets involved, and that's how that problem gets solved. But when you're pushing those sorts of limits, there, there is going to be a feel, uh, which is one of the reasons I don't think it's going to uh, fix editing right away. Uh, uh, finishing, I mean, like finish editing right away. Because the, the workflows that will actually work today are sort of those limited scenarios where you take something that's manageable, you need to do a few cuts, you need to do a review and approval, you need to, need to take notes for somebody. Those are good workflows today. Editing a whole movie with it in the cloud, not there yet, but we will be. Um, and one of the reasons for that is the industry itself. The, uh, the gaming industry is rolling out streaming services, and their technical baseline is 4K 60p. Mm -hmm. And unlike, say, Netflix, which can serve you 4K 60p, that's a one-way transaction, whereas with games, there's, there's a two-way. You know, the keyboard input has to go back up to the server, and then all that has to come back down. And Google, Microsoft, Sony are all rolling out and planning their next generation, that's going to commoditize the cloud, the cloud server requirements uh, and make them much cheaper, much more available, um, increase the, uh, the number of uh, server sites that they have around the country and around the world, really. Uh, and I think that's really going to change the game for being able to edit, uh, edit uh, through the cloud in a more dynamic nature. 
Yeah, well, we, we do a lot of education as well about uh, uh, networks and latency and um, uh, utilizing various workflows in the cloud. I, I would agree that um, uh, what, you know, the, the uh, uh, cinema finishing, um, uh, audio finishing, color, uh, uh, and the, the uh, sort of higher end editing that's required for that is much more difficult in the scenario of using a, a, a cloud edits. Um, we we do uh, uh, talk a lot about um, uh, you know you, you, you had mentioned uh, that uh, uh, you know uh, the, the the bandwidth is an issue and and bandwidth uh, can be a major issue even for people uh, outside of major uh, metropolitan areas um, and uh, you know uh, we, we we talk about similar uh, things when we talk about uh, uh, bandwidth and latency as far as uh, doubling, you know, that, that 20 megabits per HD screen that you need to get a decent experience, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, double that and, and, and you'll, get, you'll get a great experience. I have a, 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 a I'm particularly spoiled at home because I have a gig Fios connection and, uh, and I have no problems hitting our servers in San Jose uh, when I do a demo and I'm able to uh, demonstrate the software and utilize the software clear across the country with no problems whatsoever. That doesn't necessarily carry through to corporate networks and uh, uh, you know places, it, real world places where you have these security concerns, you have data loss prevention running on the network, you have that running on the workstation. So we, we find that um, what, what, what are called zero clients are, are the best way to go. And to further your point about gaming, where you have things like uh, Stadia or Shadow or Electronic Arts is coming out with theirs, and, and uh, Microsoft and, and Sony will have their platforms for the consoles, which will go away and become dumb terminals. And as you said, that will commoditize the market for doing uh, UHD at 60p. Uh, we want more than that. You know, we have a lot of people, uh, and, and, it's, and it's funny to me, you know, people come and say, well, can I edit in 8K? I say, well, do you really want to do that? You know, do you, uh, uh, you know, do, let's, let's go to a mezzanine, uh, or let's go, you know, let's, let's uh, uh, make, it, make it easier on the system and on the editor to uh, deal with this, and then finish. Right now, we do have to finish in a much more traditional way uh, uh, because of the limitations of, of, of what the, the current status of the workstations uh, bring. But um, uh, the, uh, 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 apology, I lost my train of thought. Um, uh, the, the, the education, part of the education process is, is making people aware of what these limitations are and, and how, they can, how they can work around them at this point and how we tune the systems and how we tune the network and how we tune the workstations uh, to, to give the user a better experience. And what I always describe is what you're talking about is, is that sort of rubbery feeling. You know, if you, watch, if you watch a piece of video content and it's a couple of frames out, you know, the dialogue starts getting rubbery and, 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 and you, you start to see that when you start pressing uh, the workstations in the cloud and you start, uh, 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 you have high jitter on your network, you get packet loss and you get all kinds of problems that way. So uh, we do a lot of education to get people to uh, shore up their networks. Okay, great. Um, so this one actually, nope, not for you. This is, um, we'll, we'll go back to Todd. Um, the business forces that are pushing this shift away from 
local, um, like we were saying before, with virtualizing mm -hmm. and and moving everything out of your own data center or into out of your own um, racks in your office and moving that to somebody else, uh, whether it's uh, you know an Azure or uh, an AWS. How are your customers handling? giving up the control of their media and giving it to somebody else. And actually, I will go to you afterwards, Diana, because you, yeah. from a customer standpoint, um, on the, the, uh, the movie side, but from a business sure. standpoint in the, you know, in an NBC or an ABC, how are they dealing yeah, with that? It's, a, it's an important point to understand that, it, I would say, by and large, right now, what's happening with the move to the cloud, it's a business decision. It's not to enhance craft. Um, I think with the AI and other technologies that are coming down the pipe, that's going to flip. It's going to enhance the craft, as we were talking about. Um, but right now, it's a business driver. And the finances are completely different. And they have to be understood. Uh, most of my cloud discussions with customers start with uh, a server that they already have, and then how are they moving that to the cloud. And they see what it costs to move that server to the cloud, and it's really expensive. Um, but they're looking at you know, this server in their prop on their property versus their server in the cloud. And you just can't compare one-to-one -one that way because the other aspects they gain is they're not paying a maintenance contract on that server. They're not paying some of the operating system licenses. Uh, they're not paying for the server when the server is not in use. Because when you have servers in the cloud, you shut them down, you pay literally by the minute. Uh, and so every minute that's running, you, you pay some rental fee, it's a rental model. And that's an important financial component because you're no longer talking about a capital purchase where you spend $10,000 in a server and you get to write $2,000 off of that every year. And you know, in, for, in the production world, that just can't happen because the productions don't last four years to write that off or five years to write it off. Um, so by having it uh, be an operating expense, they can write the full cost, that full rental cost over the term of the production immediately off, um, which is you know, financially fantastic because there's a huge amount of tax savings, uh, ultimately, is what that comes down to. Uh, and then when you put that in perspective, and then you add to the fact that, well, you know, maybe all those racks of servers you have are now in the cloud, and you can fit two, three more people there, um, or it's New York, so let's be honest, you rent that space back out um, or otherwise expand your business, um, then it becomes much more attractive. And, and the initial one-to-one -one comparison of the server cost versus the server and the cloud cost starts to go away, and people start to rethink things. Uh, again, you're not paying the electricity, you're not paying the insurance on it, all these, uh, all these auxiliary costs that, that people don't um, initially think of have to be rethought when they get to the cloud. Excellent, thank you. Um, Nathaniel. Um, no, we'll go back to her at, at the end. Um, in the same vein, I mean, moving, moving into the cloud, moving out of your local servers, um, your customers are um, spread out. I mean, like, I know you, you have one uh, over in Brooklyn that yep. you're working with that has their facilities all over the country, and they're constantly sharing media back and forth. How is the latency, how is the workflow for them, and what is it that uh, 
uh, that was the driving force for them to be. And we, I didn't mention any names. You can feel free to mention names if you want to. But um, how is it, uh, has it affected their workflows and what they can do? It, it has positively affected their workflow. The impetus for uh, implementing uh, the Bebop platform at this, at this company was uh, that some of their editors were, um, uh, uh, they wanted to work remotely. And by working remotely, I mean the guy moved to Philly and another it's guy moved to... It's the Starbucks to, editing model. It, it is. Um, so so uh, remote work is very important. We have a lot of uh, people uh, come and tell us... Um, uh, hey, you know, uh, uh, I'm happy to put in a 10-hour day, but when they start asking me for the 16-hour days, and I, I want to go home, and I want to see, you know, uh, the kids swim meet, and I want to go, you know, be with my family and all this sort of stuff, you, you, people can have a life uh, now. You can put in your time in the office. Uh, as long as your content is in the cloud, it's accessible from wherever you have appropriate bandwidth. So people are people are, are really looking at that sort of uh, uh, remote uh, uh, post-production uh, uh, quite a bit. And that's, that's a big driver for a lot of people. And I forgot what we were going to go back to you on. Do you remember? I'm having the senior moment that he had a couple uh, of minutes ago. It was, uh, it was this, yeah, the security. I, well, I can speak to, to sort of touch on what you, you both spoke about, because I think um, the hesitation in adapting uh, working in the cloud is is twofold, and you both mentioned it. So one of it, one of the the issues is security, and there is, you know, first of all, all of this paranoia about anything that's in the cloud, because on the production side, as a post production supervisor, it has been hammered into me that you worked on, you work on an air gapped Avid. This machine shouldn't have access to the internet. The internet and the cloud are not the same thing, but when you're trying to explain it to an executive, it feels like the same thing. Or the insurance company. <laughs> um, so there's there's a conceptual gap to get over about saying, we now have something that's connected to a server that's not in this building, that's not in this room. Um, and it's, it's a little bit scary to not have a machine that you can point to and say, this is where your media lives, um, that you, you sort of trust that that the building is secure, that the connection is secure, that your media is living somewhere safe, and you are the only one that has access to it. I think uh, the the second part of this is uh, is a cultural shift. The idea of remote editing um, is is great from a work life balance. I think there's uh, a difficulty for producers, for directors, for executives to say, I'm not sitting in a room with my editor, that's strange. Um, to say, you know, you have to get on a conference call, you can't walk in and have one-to-one -one FaceTime with someone, and I think that that is, that's the other side of the, the work-life balance that you mentioned, is that there's an acceptance that needs to happen, that it's okay if you're gonna do the 16-hour day to work from home. Um, can, I, can I say something to that? I, I, sure. just, wanna, I just wanna mention that, um, you know, uh, 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 both both things that we're talking about security and 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 um, this this sort of work life balance, but the uh, uh, security is is obviously a critical uh, uh, piece of the puzzle. And and we have the uh, MPAA security audits, and anybody who's ever been through that knows what a ringer that that is to go through. Um, but they have uh, 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 
certified is the wrong word, but I'm going to use it anyway. That's not the word they like to use, but they've validated some s cloud solutions for uh, use uh, for people. Of course, the, the studios uh, take that and ratchet it up by, by 10 and, and make you jump through those hoops uh, again, which, which is just their way of saying, you know, you're, you're going to do this and, and, and you're not going to lose our content for us. Um, uh, that's that's uh, uh, a, a critical uh, piece of the puzzle. But then as far as the, um, you know, the, the work-life balance piece and, and the collaboration piece, uh, uh, what we're missing today, uh, and, and, you know, we, we, our, our, our platform has the ability to do uh, what we call over the shoulder, which is what you're talking about, being able to walk into a suite and see what's going on on that, on that workstation and share that with a producer or creative director. Uh, and, 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 and we can do that remotely. Uh, uh, and so the, the producer can be in LA and the editor can be in, in, in Iowa if that's, if that's uh, what the calculus is. Um, but one of the things that nobody has figured out yet is, is the way to give the subtle uh, uh, personal cues that you give when, you're, when you are collaborating with somebody face to face. And that's, that's where a lot of the collaboration tools fall down in that um, it, it, maybe it's a video conference, maybe it's a phone call, maybe, but there's, there's always something missing to that. And that's an important piece of the puzzle that, uh, that uh, a lot of companies are trying to solve. Um, interesting point, thank you. Um, in the event, so talking about security and MPAA, in the event that there is a breach and something um, gets out, something gets out to uh, the uh, website somewhere. How does your system help to track that? How do how do you track that in um, in the hierarchical management of the system to go back and say, okay, that's the workstation it happened in, and this is the guy that signed in. Is you mean for Avid? In in general? Yeah. So um, you can blame it on somebody else if you'd like. And well, <laughs> I mean, secu security is a complex topic, um, and uh, you know, I've been through the MPA audits, the compliance audits, um, and, and others for uh, most of the news organizations here in the city as well. Uh, it's always, I mean, you know, it's going through the compliance audits are always walking on eggshells, uh, quite frankly. But what I've come to find and understand is that uh, the cloud security tends to be better than everybody's security, because uh, it has to be. Uh, otherwise, I, you know, the, the um, nobody would be nobody would be moving their businesses up there. And massive businesses like Salesforce are all in the cloud. And so Microsoft, Amazon, Google, the three major cloud providers, they have an extraordinarily vested interest in not getting uh, marked as that cloud company that lets security lapse. Uh, and they offer like a stunning array of tools that you can see, and a lot of things going on behind the scenes that people don't see. Uh, and they also are the people that truly hire the security experts. Um, and so the, the somewhat myth of cloud security being a problem, it's going to be harder to penetrate Microsoft's Azure cloud infrastructure than it is going to be to penetrate you know, CBS down the street, or you know, I could name anybody, but I'm just using them as an example. But it, it, just because they've, they've invested so heavily in security and compliance, and they know what they're doing. Um, and places like CBS, NBC, ABC, they're targets all the time. They're almost constantly under attack, is my understanding. 
Um, so they have th certain levels of expertise in dealing with it. But the risks don't really shift too much by just moving it, because you're just moving it to another data center, in a sense. And to put sort of wrap the bow around that, the biggest risk is the people. Um, like the people that you end up hiring, uh, there's still a risk in just moving to the cloud or move or keeping it all tied inside or you know avid air gapped network. Um, that doesn't change the fact that if you've hired somebody that has a grudge or you know wants to release something early, that's always going to be a problem. I, it's always the a, human factor. Yeah, the human factors, and that's that is the biggest risk, uh, and that's where most security breaches actually, I think, have occurred. I mean, uh, you know, even on a on a national security level, um, I also find it interesting that I have at least one customer, uh, a large customer in the city, who is moved to virtualization uh, and is moving some pieces to cloud specifically for the enhancement of the security, because you lose. It takes away physical access to the systems, so you people can't a accidentally kick over a switch. But more importantly, um, their concern is you can't plug a USB drive in and and take the media home. And if you download it at any time, everything is logged, so they'll know exactly who, what, and when that event occurred. Um, and that actually gives them this additional layer of security. And they're found finding that like some of the cloud security tools and, and just the virtualization technologies have helped that tremendously. So Diana, how, how do you work with the security and keeping track of who's doing what when you're working on your projects now that you're moving your projects around the world? Um, I mean, we try as best we can to use services like Aspera and Signet Media Shuttle and not send things via Dropbox, um, which is, that's again one of those, uh, you know, practical, accessible versus security questions where, um, you know, everyone, everyone denies it, no one will admit it, everyone has downloaded something from Dropbox because that's what someone sent you and it's easier and it's faster and it's just this and one just time. you're just in a hurry and I just need to get this out. And exactly. Yeah. Um, whereas with an Aspera or a Signiant, you have to download the desktop application. You have to log in. You've forgotten your password. It's, it's, a, it's a procedure and Dropbox is faster, but it is always and significantly less secure. to get this to the customer. Exactly. Um, so we, we try our best to do the rundown at the very beginning to say, make sure you have these things downloaded, make sure you have these passwords, make sure these accounts are active, um, because that's really the only way for us us to keep it secure and to balance uh, security and being all over the world. All right, those are the questions that I have. We went through that faster than I planned. Um, so now I'd like to, um, Nathaniel, to close off this portion, uh, of the event, just talk about something. What's on your mind? <laughs> what's on What's on uh, your mind? What are you working on? Where are you? Where's your technology going to uh, enhance the collaborative editing and uh, and working um, remotely with your customers um, without giving away too much of the roadmap? Well, I think that that uh, you know, as I said earlier, one of the big one of the big things about um, uh, Working this way is the uh, the transparency of the tools, and there there are there are some tools uh, out there that more or less than others uh, uh, don't get in the way of the creative process. And and our philosophy is to implement the tools that you're used to 
uh, using except implement them uh, in the cloud. So um, I think that I think that implementing an ecosystem around those tools that is um, uh, that enhances the collaborative nature of uh, uh, of uh, uh, editing visual effects uh, and post-production um, are, are tremendously important. Um, some of the other things that uh, uh, that uh, uh, you know that that you guys were talking about uh, that, that earlier is, are things like um, uh, you know the ancillary streams like having that outboard monitor to to see to having the broadcast reference monitor. You know, uh, we we don't have that today. I don't think anybody uh, implements uh, that uh, 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 very well yet. Um, and, uh, uh, so, so being able to support an entire ecosystem around what we call, uh, 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 you know, editorial or VFX, uh, that, that is post-production is, is tremendously important. And I think that, I think that, uh, as we, uh, as, as the cloud grows, uh, uh, as you said, you know we're we're three to five years into this, and I think that, you know, we still have a lot of requests for hybrid solutions on-prem and cloud, uh, where where people have invested millions and millions of dollars in this hardware that they have on-prem, uh, and and it hasn't depreciated yet. Um, so we still have to build these bridges to uh, uh, to get ourselves into the cloud. Um, and and to do so in a way that keeps the conversation going with the creatives, because I, you know, I'm an engineer. I, I grew up as an uh, uh, as an electrical engineer. I've been uh, 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 bridging the gap between engineering and the and the creative process for a very long time, and and I think that's that's one uh, place where uh, I know uh, we are looking at to enhance the experience. Um, but I think it's an important place that companies can look to uh, uh, to to enhance the creative experience and 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 to uh, to sort of take take the uh, gee you know I have to work in this tool I have to work in that tool and just make you know um, uh, a sort of uh, a, a Google Doc for uh, for uh, post production you know. Todd, same question for you. Look into the crystal ball. Yeah, I, you know, I think we're just on, on the cusp of something really exciting. I think we're going to get beyond the, you know, should I be in the cloud portion of the discussion. Uh, and uh, there is definitely a need for a mixed, uh, what we call hybrid cloud solutions. And some of the cloud providers actually, uh, again, Microsoft, I know, has a hybrid cloud server that you can install. And it gives you sort of the best of both worlds. Um, but I think what's going to really change the game is that once you have things in the cloud, it's going to open up services. Uh, and those services are going to result in an explosion of metadata and automation and accessibility that we just have never really seen in the industry. Uh, you know, uh, services like auto transcription, auto clipping. Uh, we've uh, been working with a company called Wild Mocha. They run an AI through uh, soccer games and uh, various sport events, and they can auto-clip that. Uh, and the reason that that's important is it takes it into the web, uses an AI engine, and the AI engine has to be in the cloud so that it can train with every customer that uses it. It gets that much better. But it can also post those clips to the web really quickly. And if you're a sports or news organization, your time to get to Twitter or to Instagram or whatever your social media platform is, 
if it's milliseconds faster than the other guy, it's your feed that's going to go viral. Um, and I, you know, I have those discussions today with uh, some of the sports organizations here in the city, and that's that's exactly their concern. They will they will say, okay, you know, this was this was a basketball event. Uh, here's this other news organization. They went viral. We posted one minute later, and we didn't. Uh, and, and the way to, for them to solve that is by already having the content in the cloud, by cr using, in this case, an AI engine to like do the auto-clipping. And at the end of all that auto-clipping, they also end up with a melt, like a, mm -hmm. a, a preset melt sequence they can bring back down and match up to their high-res. Um, so that's like really cool. And uh, yeah, there's uh, some other interesting AI-based technologies that are coming down the pike are uh, the ability to change actors' faces. Uh, you, we've all hopefully heard of like deep fakes, right? There's, there's an open source project that allows that. It's only a matter of time before, before somebody plugs it into an uh, actual editing application. Um, maybe I'll do it when I get home, I don't know. <laughs> um, but also uh, voice, uh, this is about audio as well. Uh, you know, the ability to change or create uh, voices out of thin air or to change an actor's voice uh, in the middle of a, a middle of a program. Um, you know, that's an AI powered tool that already exists and it's just waiting to get sort of implemented into, uh, into an, an existing media platform. Uh, a lot of the image recognition stuff that's going on where you can detect logos, you can detect objects, you can name and recognize uh, those objects and places, all that metadata, you know, we have a part of the Avid platform is allows for a place to put all that. Um, and that's, I think, why one of the reasons we're moving to the cloud so that our customers will then be able to take these services and, you know, again, it's cloud, it's a rental model. If you just need it for a project, you buy just what you need, you get the metadata you need that opens up in your bins, that's going to be the game changer. And, and that, I think, is what's, what's going to be tremendously exciting and something we should all look forward to. Diana, what is it that you're missing in the workflows you have now? Where, what would it get you excited about the next step in your editing and your uh, process in producing your shows? Um, so I, um, much as I've functioned as, as the wet blanket on this panel and said that yeah. everyone's very alarmed about security and, and the culture of the workplace and all of these other things, um, I'm very excited about the idea of working in the cloud because rather than uploading and downloading, we're just uploading. You're cutting your you know, daily's reception time in half. Um, it's uh, our industry as much as it's concentrated in a couple of cities is really turning into a global industry with how far and wide people are traveling to shoot on location for you know authenticity and, and creative purposes and I think if we can um, edit in those locations if um, because post now starts at the same time as production you know I I'm on before a camera turns on um, because we're setting up workflows and we're, we're getting everything ready for the end game, you know, a year, 18 months in advance, if we can have our key creatives uh, looking at the edit as they're shooting, it's gonna change the game creatively. Uh, and I'm, I'm very excited. I think the biggest challenge is optics. I think it's convincing people that this is secure, that this is uh, safe, that this is a reasonable way to do things, that the, you know, price is justifiable, that um, there's not going to be any buffering or crashes, so you know there there aren't going to be no one's going to be upset, no one's time is going to be wasted, and I think that's the biggest hurdle more than anything else. And I think the technology will get there far ahead of the politics. 
All right, great. Well, thank you. Um, yes. Yes, now we, uh, we'd like to take questions from the audience. So who has a question? Here, I'll tell you what. You take. Yes, thank you. Okay. Yes, sir. Hi, uh, question for Todd and Nathaniel. Uh, in more institutional, like uh, newsroom environments and even uh, long form editing environments, uh, where there's a lot of workstations currently that are all on prem, 15 to 25 editors operating. Uh, if that workflow were to move to the cloud, does that mean that the bandwidth requirement is still? talking 50 megabits per second per workstation? Are we really looking at growing that uh, for the pipe to the cloud up to one, two gigs, 10 gigs? Yeah, so uh, it's a great question. It's, um, I don't think that changes the bandwidth requirement depending on how things are deployed because there's a few different deployment models. And what seems to be popular right now is you put say, the media composer onto a server that's in the cloud, and then you use a zero client locally to, to access it, basically. But, the, but what you're seeing isn't, an actual, uh, isn't quite the media composer. What you're seeing is a screen grab that gets sent down the network pipe. Um, and so that's what's happening, you know, 30, 30 times a second. Uh, and this is how all, you know, all streaming services basically work. But it tries to then get smarter and take just the delta, like what's changed in the screen, you know, how is the user changing things, and just send those. Um, that's where that re requirement comes from. But if you raise or lower the screen resolution, it's going to, you know, increase the amount of bandwidth that you're required, that's, that's required. Um, so that is going to, I mean, that metric is going to carry through. Even if you do that in your facility now, if you put the media composers onto servers and put them in a rack room, uh, in your news organization, you would still have that same uh, the, the same accessibility. If you then just move those servers over to the cloud, you'd still have the same calculus. Today, you, you don't necessarily have that calculus in the same way, but if you have a Nexus or whatever your online storage is, it's actually probably pulling more bandwidth, right? Because it's going to be sending the actual media, and if you're doing like a DNX 220, it's going to be taking uh, that DNX through that network pipe, and so your bandwidth requirements are actually going to be higher in that case. Sure, but the but quality will be higher. Internal bandwidth versus external bandwidth. Internal. Intern within the facility. Yeah, I, that is still the bandwidth within the right. facility. But like if, if, you're we're, doing if we're going to the cloud, now we're paying for the bandwidth that we use to reach the cloud. How are you getting to the internet now? You're not paying for what the bandwidth. My point is, if I'm going to a Nexus server or even a media composer server that's in my rack room, yeah. I don't have to pay for that bandwidth because I have the in, I own the infrastructure. Uh, so you are paying for that bandwidth, and those switches tend to be very expensive, and the storage tends to be expensive, and the electricity and the rental. Um, so you actually would change some of that because instead of maybe having a 40-gig backbone and 100-gig backbone across all of it, you might reduce it to maybe everybody needs like a gig. Um, so... I mean, this is this is. I mean, I understand the question. It's just it's hard to say without looking at the specifics. 
I think at the end of the day, the metric, let's just call it you know, somewhere between 30 and 50 megabits per second is what you're going to need for that cloud access. Um, yeah. I would agree with that. I think one of the uh, at at my um, uh, in my previous life, we we uh, at a different company, uh, we had 170 workstations uh, churning uh, 10 hours a day, and uh, uh, we we got sufficiently irritated with the IT department uh, uh, managing those machines. I, I walked into my boss's office and said, "I'll virtualize this whole thing tomorrow if you give me two 10 gigabit pipes." And that's what it was. That's what it was going to take to get that bandwidth. So I, I, everything you said is absolutely correct. You're just shifting that bandwidth load from internally to an external source. Other questions? Um, so um, again, Bebop and Avid, you have a very nice wrapper around uh, cloud editing, um, very nice solutions. But at the same time. Microsoft, uh, AWS, and uh, Google—you know—they they, they come up with uh, sort of a do-it-yourself solutions, building up um, around their technologies. Not easy to do; it requires some skills. I'm um, just wondering how you're going to be positioning yourself and your uh, products to that sort of a do-it-yourself approach that those cloud providers. We get that question a lot. Um, and and uh, the honest answer is, uh, if you want to do it yourself, that's great. Uh, you can do that. I'll talk to you in a two months. When it doesn't work, when it's too difficult to do, when the end user comes and says, I, what, what, what is this IP address I have to type in this to, to get to the machine? You know, um, uh, What's the end user experience? Well, there's, a whole, there's a whole ecosystem built around uh, uh, building that that's important to, um, to make it much more usable than sort of usable for the one-off or, or two-offs that, that, that might happen. Um, and and I'm, I'm, I'm being a little flip there, obviously, but that happens more often than you'd think. People will say, well, I can do it myself. And yeah, you can do it yourself. There are a lot of offerings out there to, uh, to do that. Um, uh, but if you, if you want a more streamlined experience, uh, the, other thing, the other thing that we offer for our platform is that support. So you don't have to go through any of those hoops. You just you literally click on the machine, it spins up, and, and, and you're working in the cloud. So uh, that's an important factor to, uh, to think about. I love this question, actually. It's one of my favorite sort of hidden topics of, of the cloud, because uh, there is a lot of compl complexity in getting the initial setups to be done. Um, and, and I liken it back to, uh, like, you know, the mid-90s when you'd add an audio card or something, you had to hit the dip switches, and it was really complicated. Nobody could figure out how to do that. I know some of you know what I'm talking about. Um, but over time, I mean, now, you know, everything is plug and play. It's very simple. And uh, you know we've entered into this world where we don't think about adding a piece of hardware. You know, you you buy a new phone, it automatically just integrates into your computer. Um, the cloud is kind of at that earlier stage, but what it's capable of doing is awesome, truly awesome. It is completely programmable, and I mean completely. So imagine today you spend fifteen million dollars on a production truck. Right to to do uh, sporting events. Uh, I, I assisted with the Super Bowl a few years ago over in Jersey, and there were lots of very expensive trucks going going in, huge capital expenses. Now imagine five years from now, you could take that entire production truck and literally reduce it to a script 
You send somebody with a laptop, they go to whatever the, the nearest download area is. Now, there's going to be some work currently to get that script set up. But once you have that template, it's going to work in Asia. It's going to work in you know any of the... Uh, it's going to work at pretty much anywhere in the U.S. deployments, anywhere around the world, really, once you have the core scripts gun, uh, set up. And you can copy them and make you know, multiple facilities, basically, um, just with the computer script. So you could take everything you had in that truck that could be virtualized, which will be most of it, send somebody on site, run the script, make sure the bandwidth and everything is connected, set up. You never have to buy that truck again. You know, Maybe it becomes a Dodge minivan or something at most, where you just have those few I.O. pieces that you need or a satellite transmission or, or some endpoints uh, um, for ingest or final. Um, but everything else in the middle, you virtualize it, you put it in the cloud, that becomes your production. Now at the end of it, you just close the script up. You copy all of those servers off to a hard drive, whether you do that in the cloud or locally or both, for redundancy, whatever you need, and you walk away, it's done. And you only paid for you know, that, that weekend event you only paid for those, server, those servers and those systems and those licenses for that weekend. Uh, and that's an awesome capability. It can also be used to back up any facility, uh, post-productions, post films, same thing. Instead of you know, working remotely, why not go to Germany, run a script on you know, Microsoft's uh, European Union uh, data center, you run the script, you spend a week in an Airbnb or you know, a few months, I guess, for production. Um, but your entire uh, your entire media infrastructure is already set up and deployed locally in the cloud, so your bandwidth should be good, or you can you know pay the local telecom to get you the bandwidth you need, and then at the end you kind of zip it all up, throw it on a drive, and 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 it's done. And if you want to go back to LA to do the finishing, you can set it right back up, download everything, match it to the high res locally, and finish. And I think that's an awesome capability that just isn't really uh, well understood and people are only really starting to think about now. Other questions? Anyone? Over here. I'll just pass this along. Thank you. Uh, can you speak about um, kind of like the larger environment outside of just Composer? when people want to use a MAM or a PAM or a plug-in or things of that nature? Sure. Um, so currently, we, uh, we are beyond Composer. I mean, uh, most of our core software can be virtualized at this point. Uh, you know, Pro Tools, Media Composer, our MAM, our uh, you know, Interplay, uh, now called uh, Media Central uh, Production. Uh, iNews, all that's actually virtualizable at this point. Um, so we are beyond just the Media Composer. We did uh, just release, so, so sort of the first phase, if you look at the history of sort of uh, the way IT and software companies work, um, the journey to the cloud starts out with what they call a lift and shift, where you take your, the server you have today and the software, the software package you have on a server today, and you'll put it in the cloud, or you put it on a VM, and it works. And from the VM, you move it up to the cloud, and it works. Um, that's like everybody's phase one that's been around for more than 10 years. Uh, from there, what happens is you start kind of breaking the software back down. And that's what we've been doing with our Media Central platform initiative break it down into component services. So instead of having, uh, give an understandable example, in, instead of having like an LDAP, like a, a login capability in 
uh, user authentication mechanism. Instead of having one that uh, lives in Interplay and one that lives in our MAM, one that lives in our Media Central product, or the various products, you now have one, and uh, all of our systems take advantage of that one. And I wouldn't say we're completely there yet, but it's a journey. Um, and you're seeing this across the industry uh, and in the IT industry. People start with the application, they get it up there, and then they break it into service parts. Once they have those service parts, uh, you start being more, you start having on-demand offerings. Like if I only need this service, if I only need a transcription service, if I only need a plug-in, like a generates plug-in effect, you know, you set those up in an environment where, uh, you know, for both the the software developers. Uh, and the customer, they can sort of click and purchase, uh, you know, use it as much as they need it, and then you know, release the license they had. So it becomes more of a rental model, going back to that sort of CapEx, cap OpEx. Um, that's why uh, so many services today are moving, you know, at becoming subscription, like Adobe went subscription, because everybody wants sort of this service model. And there's other business reasons for it too, but for the end user, it offers that, you know, I, I have it as long as I need it, and then I let it go. Uh, and it gets away from the sort of the the capital penalty because it becomes an operating cost. Does that answer your question? There's another hand question up. back here. Anyone else? John. I'm sorry. Back up here. Okay. Sorry. Hi. Thanks. Um, I'm interested in online education. And virtualization is a might be a very useful way of providing um, education when it comes to software and post-production tools. I provide a service to kids in Brooklyn where I teach them Photoshop, video editing, and I provide software um, through remote access. So the kids will have a pretty crappy PC at home or something like that, and they con they connect to my machine, which is loaded up with all the software, and then they would do the video tutorials and control my machine to get practice and access to the software. Um, how um, has Bebop, is that being used in any way for education, for online education? And how do you guys solve the licensing issue um, when it comes to working remotely? Uh, and my question for, the app, for Avid, um, how do you guys provide licensing for remote access? Uh, that's, that, you know, it's funny because I, I uh, spoke uh, about that use case, uh, uh, as a matter of fact, today uh, uh, with somebody about online education. Um, it's uh, um, we we currently we, we're in discussions with a couple of people to to implement something like what you're discussing. Uh, we don't currently have uh, that implemented. Um, it's it's a great use case for um, you know because you can take a uh, an eight year old PC. I'll put my foot in my mouth there. Uh, and 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 run a, a, a small application that will take this incoming stream and display it, and then you can have a machine that's got 16, 32, 64 cores, you know, a terabyte of memory, and you know, all, all kinds of insane specs, and that's what you have access to. You don't necessarily need that in the scenario you're 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 talking about, but you can access a, a, a system uh, that way, um, and and it is very. Um, uh, uh, and it can be very cost effective for for uh, education given that everybody doesn't need to go out and buy uh, their own computer 
uh, uh, they, you know, their own high-end computer to to edit and 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 use Photoshop and and do these sorts of things. As far as the licensing is concerned, um, we our model is a bring your own license model uh, with everything we do, with the exception of 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 the uh, Avid on Bebop platform, where we provide those uh, licenses. Uh, uh, to the end user. So, um, for if you're using, for instance, Adobe or Autodesk or or, or those sorts of platforms, um, they they have a, a named user uh, license model, um, and you just log in and use your own license. So, if one of the requirements is that uh, your students come with with uh, their own, uh, you know, they you can you can rent the software uh, by the month. Uh, uh, if that's what you want to do, and and so you you pay for that rental, and and uh, you can utilize the uh, the licenses that way. Does that answer your, uh, both of those questions? Great. As far as um, I mean, our, our license model we have several now uh, for our creative tools. Uh, there's the sort of month to month model. There's a you know the perpetual license. There's the traditional dongle. Um, there's a lot of different licensing that uh, can approach that. The, the, once you start sharing those licenses out in, a capa in any capacity, it starts to get complicated. I, I guess is probably the easiest way to say it because some, um, a lot of software as complex as like Media Composer, it's not really a single license uh, because there's subcomponents that are also licensed. Uh, like third-party plugins, for example, codecs and other things, and each might have a slightly different license model between, uh, you know, there's different license schemes. There's a, uh, and I'm not saying, I'm speaking generally, but there's like a user model, there's a per-seat model, there's a per-CPU model, uh, and some of the subcomponents sometimes have complex license schemes themselves that don't necessarily comply or allow certain types of remote access. So, um, I would just, re in, in your case, if you're concerned about any sort of compliance, I would reach out to the, to the uh, vendors and see what educational opportunities they might have to provide licensing, because a lot of them will give out for educational purposes license for free or nothing. There's also some nonprofits that exist that, uh, that will provide licensing for you know, literally dollars. Um, I think you can get Adobe Cloud as a nonprofit for I think the first year it's like three dollars, and the follow-on years it might go up to a hundred, depending on you know what forms you fill out and stuff. Um, so in your situation, I definitely look into that. As far as just like screen sharing and doing education, I think generally you know that that's a great use. That's a that's a great way to just give kids access, and uh, I think it's that's wonderful. And I can help you with that. See me after the event's over, and I can talk to you. There's something over in Brooklyn that I can help you with. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hello, I'm, uh, I'm a bit old fashioned and I don't really understand what you mean by virtualization. Um, I wonder how you can virtualize a six camera truck with the director and the audio guy and the video control and all the necessary things that you need for each individual camera. How can you virtualize it? To me, I'm an old-fashioned engineer, and it's just it's just hardware. And how could you make it virtual? Uh, that's a great question. Um, so the cameras need to be have a physical presence. 
Um, but IP-based cameras, um, I think there's a couple already out there, uh, and there's a, definitely some that are coming. Uh, if you plug those into a router, like everything else behind that can be driven just by the IP, just by the, the internet address. Uh, you capture the stream and you can do anything you want with it that you, that you could in a physical truck. The physical truck is just, it, it makes certain tactile presentation easier, and I think there's reasons for control surfaces and stuff that may stay around for that. But most of that backend, believe it or not, it's a digital signal now. You can route it with uh, just uh, you know, Cisco switching or other switching. Okay, Wh where is this uh, uh, 20 to one or 100 to one Fujinon lens and the actual camera? I mean, that is a very- That would be in the stadium. Mm -hmm. okay. But even today, that Fujinon lens has a wire back to the truck, right? Yes. Okay. So, and it, instead of plugging into, uh, it, it, it would be an internet cable in this case, or wireless, potentially, and just plug into a computer switch. All of the robotic cameras these days, they're all IP, IP based. Okay. Yeah. So you have the lens controls, you have the pan tilt zoom controls, you have the dolly controls, all of that is IP. And, and to so that point, you don't even need the operators for the cameras right, the there. the operators are also going away. <laughs> yeah. so, so, so how do they follow the action on the, on the, the field? With a joystick. A with a joystick. You think you can get the same feel with no. a joystick so can with a camera person? I, no, but you know, I know a computer that could because you can use tracking. You can use tracking and yep. they just pick the points that they want to track or tell it generally. You know, when some of the cameras follow the ball. If you have 14 cameras in the stadium, Maybe you run 10 of them through AI engines uh, in, in tracking that way. Um, also, there's nothing, I, I know some, like the NFL is exploring putting chips in helmets and other tracking devices and chips in the ball. Uh, in they're not exploring, they're doing it. Yeah, and they're tracking they the players on a tablet and well, watching try, I'm the trying player to keep as everything theoretical. The <laughs> when are we going to end up with virtual players and then you don't have to have any human They have esports leagues already. Well, they yeah, already have them. That's called esports, yes. <laughs> Yeah. Tech. Okay. <laughs> yes. But, uh, but oh, sure. those of you were at the meeting we did at Cisco last year, where we mm -hmm. they talked about the new NBC Universal location in Philadelphia, which is all ST2110. So there's no actual coax cable or standard circuit switching in the entire facility, and the switcher interface is a keyboard. So they're doing all the. There's no traditional interface. So, it was a great meeting, but it was scary. Okay, <laughs> well, but I still don't get where, what the virtual is. Well, one of the one of the interesting things that is happening now, and if you look at if you look at an application like um, Adobe Rush, if any anybody familiar with that, anybody see the beta and it look so so if you separate if you separate the user interface from the uh, logic and compute that's going on, right? The compute's going on in the cloud, and then I can toss a user interface over there or over there or over there. So all of a sudden, I have an interface for my robo-operator, I have an interface for my TD, I have an interface for my director, I have an interface for audio, I have an interface for graphics, I have an interface for an ass assistant producer, and, and I can tie all those together with comms. Well, so maybe the, the producer is in, in Buffalo, and the uh, TD is in New York, and and the uh, graphics operator is in uh, Kansas City. It it doesn't matter. They're all they're all working on the same uh, 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 
the same signals that are passing that are being processed in the cloud. So that's 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 a step of virtualization that several companies are are taking right now, and I think and it's a, it's an important step in separating out the user interface from the actual uh, uh, code that that operates on your on your uh, video or media. So Diana, <laughs> wake up. How? Listening to this, virtualizing, remoting, cameras, taking things back, now that the world of feature film and television episodic has gone from film to 4K or 8K cameras, taking that and moving that into a send a crew, a small crew on location, and remote everything back to a central location with a multi-camera shoot, now you have a quarter of the number of people that you actually have to have on set. Do you see that that could happen in the future for feature films? Um, I don't think that'll that'll too drastically reduce the number of people on set. Um, I th and I think the the bigger challenge is the dailies process um, because that's taking your 4K, 6K, 8K, and uh, you know making it DNX 115 or DNX 220 or something consumable um, on an edit platform because we're not cutting in 8K, that would be insane. Um, I'm sure the Isilon guys in the audience would love to sell <laughs> the storage to take care of that, or the Avid guy. Um, but as far as uh, you know, taking your editorial media out of dailies and uploading it to the cloud and then just editing in the cloud seems like the next logical step. I'll go back to this virtualization thing for a second. Um, are we talking about hypervisors and spinning up like computers that then get loaded with software in the cloud and then you're bringing back this interface back to me so I can, you know, work on that and potentially have something similar to like a KVM experience by operating locally? Or is you talking about something even bigger than that? So, um, I guess when you put all the pieces together, it becomes bigger than that. But just to, to get some fundamental perspective on what we, how virtualization in the cloud works, um, if you take your, let's say, your laptop or your PC now, you know, it's got a hard drive, it's got a CPU, and it's got uh, hard drive, CPU, what else do you have in there? Desktop. Uh, you know, keyboard, desktops, yeah. Um, all, all the parts, RAM, that's what I was looking for. Uh, so if you, instead of building a computer that way, if you built a box that was just RAM, like a lot of RAM, and you built a box that was just CPUs, like hundreds of CPUs, and then you built really massive disk array, and then what you did is say, okay, now I want to run Windows, and you put it into that system, and just say, okay, you use this CPU and that little bit of RAM over there, and then you've loaded another version of Windows again, or maybe a Mac, or maybe a Linux machine, and you say, okay, you use this second CPU, and you use this little bit of RAM. That's kind of the basics of how virtualization works. You take a big pool of the resources, and then you, uh, you, know, you pretend that it's actually just that small little laptop that you have in your hands. 
and there's a software layer uh, that, that will sit there and manage that, and essentially another operating system, a virtual operating system, a virtualized operating system. It's really not that different than what I was talking about, uh, the attempted joke I was making earlier about the little dip switches. You used to buy an audio card and you'd plug it in, and then you know you had to physically set the IRE or whatever it was on it to get the, the right memory address. Um, and then somebody figured out, you know, if I built a software layer and, and nobody had those switches, and I assign them, I could keep control of that. That's a type of virtualization. You took the physical interface and you said, okay, let me build an abstraction layer. And virtualization is all about that abs those abstraction layers and there's, there's multiple. Um, you build the right abstraction layer uh, and then you have it do the management. And then the, the, the operating system that was looking for that audio card, now it just looks at that abstraction layer and it sees an audio card with the right memory with the right memory layout, because that little abstraction piece, that, uh, that would be a driver in this case, uh, you know, had managed it all. Now, once you've done that for your audio card, you know, 20 years later, actually less than that, but um, you know, we see that you could do this for every part of the PC. Every, every physical part could have a virtual abstraction layer, whether it's the keyboard, the display, the audio cards, all of that. And then if you do it for a PC, well, why can't you do it for a switcher? Um, you know, why can't you do it for other pieces of hardware? Uh, and, and, and that's, you know, where we are now. I hope that helps. But your, your physical infrastructure you're doing, it's like VMware or something like that? When, when Avid is selling this stuff to the consumer? Yeah, so are we buying a VMware socket that has a Windows thing and looks like a desktop and then we get access to that? Or is there something totally different that we're getting access to? So for our editorial in the cloud, which is Media Composer in the cloud, for all intensive purposes, you go there and it looks like Media Composer on an operating system. You don't see any of the other stuff behind. It's just as if it's on your desktop. You access it with your keyboard and your mouse. Well, uh, let's say I'm a colorist yeah. and I want to do a lot of complicated coloring things. That also you take the color interface that I would have at my computer and... Yeah, you, you can plug it into a USB port on your local Xero client and you know that will, that will let the operating system that's actually up in the cloud know uh, and then you... And you could get, I could get the quality back so I could see it on my broadcast no, quality no, no, monitor? Let, let's, let's not be a colorist for right now. Okay. Ask uh, me again in three to five years. Yeah. Okay. But this is, you know, this is where one of the limits that we're at right now is um, some of those physical interfaces, they just, uh, they, they aren't there yet. I, I mean, part of the problem with being a, a colorist in the, in the abstract sense of the cloud is there's just too many sort of um, plain, yeah, there's, there's additional layers of variables as far as, you know, the gamma settings and the virtualization, all, all that. It's not impossible, um, but you could probably work out a way to color calibrate that, but it's still a very compressed signal. So I don't know that you'd want to be doing that. But, you know, for the person that's cutting it before they send it to the expensive uh, Otour colorist, uh, you know, they're the people that would, you know, make use of the virtualization. And maybe for the colorist, they just, they're pointed to where, the, where the, uh, the drive space that the final media lives on in the bins, and you pull those down. Oh, and then you take the edit decision list, pull it down. Yeah, you, you, and you only take the media you want. Actually, you wouldn't that's even, already been. You probably decided. wouldn't even take the media. You'd have the high res, the 8K oh. locally already, okay. right? And you just go get the bins and stuff. So you open the sequence, and then you, you, know, you relink that to your high res. Wait, how do we get the 8K locally? 
it's there from it's the beginning. Same way you do it today, whatever, however you do it today. It's already virtualized. How did they get it back? Well, it could be virtualized. You could store it all up there, uh, in which case, you know, oh, it's probably you're, in an archive. You hit I'm a restore and pull and it I down. I the 8K when I'm back home in Hollywood. Yeah, okay, be, I see. Because the the drives are also virtualized. Like mm. you still have a C drive or you know your OS drive. Right. Uh, right. You still have uh, you know a Nexus, um, a completely virtualized Nexus system potentially as well. And you would still, if you're on that editing system, it's still going to look like the Nexus you're used to. It's going to be you know mapped to some other drive, and you could go in and just you know trigger transfers to download it, um, to download the media and. People will know you're doing it if, if there's, you know, HBO. Yeah, come back tomorrow when it's here, and you just plan ahead better. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Thank the you The real answer much. is yes, you can do 8K in the cloud, and you can do grading in the cloud, but you can't afford to do it. <laughs> <laughs> you can build the pipes, and you can buy the cloud storage. You can't afford it. Thank you. Make sure I have a question. Yes, sure. Sorry. Yeah, sure. Another question? So you touched on uh, reference monitoring a little bit. So with computer monitors being a dime a dozen, you go to Best Buy, B&H, you buy whatever monitor is on sale. How do you deal with, or how do your clients, and how do you deal with reference monitoring so that everybody's looking at the same signal? I mean, you know, monitors have half a dozen settings. Capture card outputs have half a dozen sure. settings. So everybody's going to be looking at a different color, different quality signal. So how do your clients deal with that? Uh, well, I think as as uh, as he mentioned earlier, you know the, the the color proposition right now in the cloud. We're also looking at an eight bit signal typically, so um, uh, we we punt a little bit. We 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 um, uh, we're not, and and that signal is also heavily compressed. Uh, you know, coming down to the to the workstation, you're you're talking about something that's somewhere. Uh, between 20 and 20 and 60 megabits or 70 megabits, depending on what you're doing on the screen. Um, so uh, we can we can use the scopes that are that are built into the NLE, or um, uh, and 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 there are a lot of people that that do that. But you're still seeing an 8-bit representation, which is which is good enough for most applications. Um, it's not going to get you a, a, a broadcast TV show or a Netflix show, or that you're still going to have to bring that down and do your do your uh, color timing uh, uh, locally. Um, so, so that sort of uh, color matching is 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 tricky to do as as it would be on prem. So, um, it's it's something that, um, ha as far as I'm seeing, hasn't necessarily been fully addressed and is something that uh, requires the, the, the protocols to be uh, updated from to uh, more media and entertainment specific uh, workflows. We have to upgrade to uh, 10 bits and beyond in, in that. Um, and, uh, and, and you need a, you need a, a far bigger pipe uh, uh, to, to really see what you're doing there. Um, but we can, we can get very close uh, with where we are now. knew what a waveform and vector scope was and knew how to read them and knew how to, you know, video levels and color mm -hmm. levels. These days, you know, a nonlinear editor that has no vector scope, you know, what is that? They don't know. And so, and so their visual representation is the display. So, you know, how are they, this way they can see whether, oh, maybe the video level is too high or too low. And if one editor sees it and one doesn't, 
you know, if their two monitors are different, you know, one may catch it and one may not. <laughs> We encourage people to use to use the scopes. We we go through a QC process with various various QC tools that will that will point that out. And you can do that without an outboard monitor because the software is telling you, oh, at uh, at frame X, there's you know there's a there's a color gamut excursion out of uh, 709 or something like that. Um, so that's 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 typically what we do. But you're you're right. You you have no idea uh, where that monitor came from, how old it is, where it's calibrated. You have no clue what's going on there. So it's 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 very difficult, uh, especially when you're talking about roaming. Uh, you know, people going from their laptops, which if anybody's ever graded on a laptop, kudos to you because that's a hard <laughs> thing to do. Um, uh, you know, it's 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 still a challenge, and it's something that I, I would say uh, uh, I, I'd give it another 18 months to two years, and and that is something that uh, the the color management is going to come uh, with the protocols. So speaking from uh, the end user experience, um, as far as as offline color goes, I mean it's Daily's color, and everyone that's looking at this footage is looking at it on a different display. So yes, our editor's looking at it on a broadcast monitor. I'm watching it on my laptop. The DP's watching it on his iPhone. Um, you know, ev everyone's seeing it on a different display. So the, the goal is just to sort of see what's there. And, you know, the reason that we screen dailies every day is so that if there is something that's questionable, that's, uh, you know, dark, that seems strange or unexpected then we can pull you know a frame or a piece of the raw bring it into a color suite um you know check it out in in aces or even in in rec 709 just with you know our dailies let and see if something's going on with our dailies let because i think that color is is quite a ways off it sounds like because especially with everything moving to hdr i mean we're working with 16-bit exr files that's that's uh, a hefty file, um, and that's a lot to ask from you know any any service. That's a lot to ask from a, a server sitting in the next room, um, especially when you're uh, doing Adobe Vision grades. You have metadata for every frame of your sequence. Um, it's you know that's that's the bigger lift. That's something that right now there's not a particular practical reason to do in the cloud, and there's not a practical reason to be overly concerned about your color representation in offline. Thank you. Just one other thing I'd point out. Um, your question is also applicable to sound. Uh, yeah. You can't do Atmos, you know, you're not going to do your Atmos mix uh, uh, on these systems. Um, and and these, this is the greater conversation about, you know, what workflows are going to work for people. I, I do a lot with news people, so that um, that isn't too much of a problem. But like on the IMAX projects, yeah, we're not going to be doing that. Anyone else? Okay. Any more questions? Questions? <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. Everyone. Oh, one, 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 one more. One more. One more. Almost Hi. I just wanted to ask real quick. Um, how do assistant editors on a feature film where you have sometimes three or four of them, how do they factor into a cloud-based workflow? Um, I've heard a lot of talk about the picture editors but not the assistant editors. So is the goal, I guess, in a cloud to automate their job now, what they do with auto clipping? Or I was wondering what you guys could expand on with how you see, you know, VFX editors, assistant editors, how their future pans out. 
uh, I mean, functionally, I, I see uh, AEs and, and VFX editors largely serving the same role they serve today because they do uh, a lot more than, you know, string outs. They're organizing bins. They're doing first passes on scenes. They're they're really contributing to the, the creative aspect of it as well as, uh, you know, the organization side of it. So um, the upside that I see is that if the uh, cloud-based workflow automates some more of that organizational stuff than they then you know we have a greater creative team. Yeah, I would say that uh, the cloud's probably going to enhance y your your uh, abilities and prospects because the the systems today even today will like meet the needs of an assistant editor as far as just marking the footage and and getting it ready for the for the final editor who actually might be the person that has access to the high res uh, and be on like the more expensive system. Um, so I, I don't think it'd be going away uh, in any shape or form. Even as AI tools come into that, um, somebody still has to sort of manage and organize it for the editor. I think it's going to, I think the problem's going to get harder because you're going to find yourself potentially inundated with a whole bunch of additional things to do. For example, when you start doing facial recognition, well, you can detect all the faces, but somebody's going to mark every one of those actors. I don't think it's going to be the main editor. I think it's going to be the assistant editors or the, the visual effects people. And that's just going to be something else they're going to add to your plate. So they might need more of you. And today also, there's a lot more in the metadata portion of the projects than ever before. So now you're looking at hundreds and hundreds of fields of metadata that the AEs and the people in the background they need to be able to wrangle all of that too so they know the good shots from the bad shots and some of that can be done in AI but still somebody's got to go through all that metadata and make sure that it's correct and even the AI probably won't be perfect so somebody's gonna have to correct that like the facial detection stuff you know it's very good but uh, if you're doing a crowd scene it gets everybody in the crowd so somebody's gonna go through and delete all those like you know yeah, well, whether they're digital 3D characters or actual people, somebody's going to have to like get rid of that. So you're going to have more work, I think. <laughs> okay. okay. Thank you Thank very you. much, everyone.